Father, thank you that you're among us and you love everyone in this room. Thank you, you have undoubtedly a fantastic plan for our lives. God, I pray just now in these few moments as we gather and just look at a passage of the Bible and unpack it and apply it to our lives, I pray that you'd speak, God. People who are far from you, I pray they'd hear you. Maybe even for the first time, I pray, speak to their hearts. Every single one of us, build us up and change our lives, we pray. We invite you, God. Have your way among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, compromise. The word compromise means different things to different people. The Webster's Dictionary has two different definitions of compromise. Uh, First definition is a positive one. It's to come to an agreement by mutual consent. It's like the guy who who was desperate to buy a boat, and his wife didn't want him to buy a boat. So after a while, he just bought a boat. And, uh, and he told her, honey, I bought a boat, and she was, really wasn't that chuffed. So anyway, he said, but listen, as a compromise, I'll let you name the boat. And she said, okay. So he arrived for his first day sailing. He got into the docks, and he walked down, and there on the side of the boat had the letters, for sale, <laughs> written on the side of the boat. Compromise, all right? So you've got to come to some sort of mutual concession, in some areas, compromise is positive, like in marriage, okay? You gotta, it's got to give and take, right? You can't always have your own way. In business, some give and take is important for you to be a good business person. Or in parenting, how many parents know what I'm saying? You've got to learn to compromise sometimes. You've got to give them something, okay? Uh, but in other areas, compromise is de- devastating and dreadful. The second definition from Webster's Dictionary of compromise is to make a sh- shameful or a disreputable concession, you know, it's when you choose to compromise in your character, your principles, uh, your convictions. At that point, you lose integrity, you lose all power, you lose all credibility. And this is a church Jesus is writing to. This is in the book of Revelation. We're in a series looking at Jesus literally writing letters to churches. And uh, this is Jesus from the throne of heaven giving this revelation to John, and they were, the revelation was for specific churches 2,000 years ago, but as you're going to find just now, he is speaking directly to us today. So this is Revelation uh, chapter 2, and we're going to start verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful, my, my witness, my faithful one, <clears throat> who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have those in the same way who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Wow. We know it's important, but we don't fully know what he's saying to us, all right? So let's unpack it, because this is so relevant. This is so radically relevant for our lives, for our city, for our church. 
So first of all, the city, Pergamum, Pergamos, Pergamum. It, it was actually one city in two parts, and it was separated by about 500 meters. There was the upper city and there was the lower city, the lower city and the upper city, or the Acropolis. Uh, the Acropolis, Acropolis means acro, means summit, polis means city, so it's literally summit city, the Acropolis, up on top of the mountain. So 500 meters above the lower city was looming above them this Acropolis, and up in the Acropolis were four temples, three to pagan gods and one to a Roman emperor. Four temples up in this Acropolis. The main temple of all the four temples up there, the main one was a temple to the god Zeus. And this temple, uh, if you go there today, um, it's actually been flattened completely. There's just kind of a plinth where the temple to the god Zeus was, but that was the main temple. But actually today, if you go to Berlin, in the former part, which was eastern Berlin, there is a, a, a museum there called the Pergamum Museum. And in the Pergamum Museum, they've rebuilt brick for brick. This is, this is it here. They've rebuilt stone for stone the temple of Zeus one-to-one scale. And as you can see, it's a huge scale temple from that Acropolis in this city called uh, Pergamum. Now, it was actually designed like an armchair, two arms and a seat. And right in the middle of the armchair was this altar that was perpetually burning. So it's like this seat. It's a place, it was, it was a seat-like uh, temple. And so you imagine you were in lower Pergamum, where most people were, you would every day be aware of this huge, it's like a seat up on the mountaintop above you that was perpetually having this column of smoke. So Jesus is saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So this is Jesus talking about their enemy and our enemy. Jesus, I believe, was making direct reference to this temple of Zeus. Not that that particular pagan god had more affiliation to Satan than any other pagan god, but it it certainly represented some spiritual dominion in that place. So Jesus was saying, and he was referring to this hideous temple up on this mountainside where this false god was worshipped. And Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, there are many religions and gods in Pergamos, but Jesus wasn't saying, I'm just writing to you to say, please be tolerant to all the religions. He wasn't saying that, all right? He was saying, it's the devil, all right? He was, he was really clear in this. In fact, behind every false religion are demons, which are fallen angels, or the devil, who is a fallen angel. And the agenda of demons and the agenda of the devil is to distract human beings from worshiping the true God. They want to get people away and worship everything other than God's. Even if they don't believe in the existence of God, they're quite happy with that as well. But demons want to distract people. So demons want to take people away from Jesus. Any religion that makes Jesus less is demonically inspired. Paul the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons. So the Bible's really clear that behind deceptive religions or cults are demonic forces there to take people's eyes off the truth, the true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Any religion that says Jesus is just a prophet was demonically inspired. Any religion that says he's just a mere man or a guru, that's demonically inspired. Jesus is none other than God, the creator of this universe, in the flesh, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. We believe in the true gods. We believe in one Savior. There is only one way, and that's what the Bible says, and that's what our experience has been. So he didn't say, oh, just be tolerant to all the religions. He was saying, no, there's a darkness behind what you see going on here. And 
probably definitely the same could be said in our lives today. He's not saying don't be. He doesn't say be intolerant of people. He says be intolerant of false belief systems. Satan has two ways of attacking. He did back then, and he does today. First, he tries to attack a believer from the outside. Failing that, he will try to attack a believer on the inside. He will try and attack a believer with, from the outside with suffering. He will try and attack a believer on the inside with seduction. He, he, will, he will come against you on the outside with persecution, or he will come against you on the inside with pleasures. And it's, it's, I, I have a river down there where I live, the river Leith, it just goes out of town, I just live further up the river. And whenever I'm down walking by the river, every so often after a storm, you see a huge tree fallen. And what you discover is that storms put pressure on trees from the outside. And ironically, some storms actually make trees stronger. It, it, the kind of, they're standing against a storm, strengthens their infrastructure and strengthens their roots. So some storms actually don't ruin the tree. However, there are other times where the tree collapses, even if there's not a storm. And if you actually examine the tree which has fallen, even though on the outside the bark was perfect, on the inside it had decayed and rotted from the inside out. And that's what made it give in. So too, Satan will attack on the outside with suffering or persecution, and he will definitely also try and attack on the inside with seduction or with pleasures. However he can do anything to undermine your life, he will. And that leads on to now what we we see going on in this church, compromise. Verse 14, Jesus said, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit acts of sexual immorality. Now, who, who is Jesus referring to here, right? If you go right back in the Old Testament to the book of Numbers, you can read this in your own time, chapters 22 to 24, you find this strange character called Balaam. Balak was the ruler of the territory known as, known as Moab. And Balak saw the Israelites approaching his territory, and he felt very threatened. But instead of starting to attack them on the outside persecution, he tried to bring an attack more subtly in a different way. So he hired a soothsayer called Balaam who came and he asked this man, Balaam, to place a curse on the whole nation of Israel and then that would remove their defensive power and then Moab could overcome them. So Balaam came and he was, about, and he was going to be paid handsomely. But as soon as he started speaking, he wasn't able to curse God's people, the Israelites. Every time he tried to curse them, blessing came out of his mouth because God refused to allow him to curse what God had blessed. Three times that happened. Balaam was trying to curse them, and Balak was asking him to, but three times, blessings came out instead. So we think that's the end of the story until you get to the next chapter in the book of Numbers where you see the Israelite men mixing with the Moabite women And then before they knew it, they were going with those women to their pagan rites and sacrifices. And then next thing you see is a plague broke out among the Jewish people that killed 24,000 of them. And you kind of don't relate that event to the events that led before it. But actually it was related. If you read on later in Numbers, you discover that Balaam, having been unable to place a curse on Israel, gave advice to the king Balak and said this, I can't touch them. They're blessed. You can't touch them because they're under God's blessing. Here's what you need to do. You need to get themselves, they will bring themselves out of blessing if you can seduce them. So he said, 
choose some of the hot chicks among you, Balak, and send them in among the Israelites, get their attention, and lure them away sexually, and then before they know it, they'll be worshiping in your own rituals, and they will have moved out from under God's blessing. I guess an illustration is, if it's raining, you have the umbrella up, and while you're under the umbrella, the rain can't touch you. It could could be light rain, or it could be really heavy rain, but you're under the umbrella, it can't touch you. So over there, someone's there trying to say, come out from under the umbrella, and it's really tempting. So you end up going out over here, and before you know it, you yourself, the rain couldn't have touched you if you just stayed stayed put, but you yourself brought yourself out from under the blessing because you went after the thing that was tempting you. And so too it's the case. If you can remain under God's, if the Israelites had just followed God in that, in that experience rather than allowing temptation to distract them. They would have remained blessed because they were blessed. But you see, God won't work against your free will. If you, by your free will, choose to step out from under God's blessing, then it's by your own choice. You're exposing yourself spiritually and you're bringing yourself into a very dark place. And this is exactly what was going on here. In this church, people who were blessed we're moving out from under God's blessing, and it was Satan's tactic to undermine them. He'd tried persecuting them. We'll come to that in a moment. He, they, they'd experienced severe persecution, but they weren't budging. But now he was trying a different tactic. He tried to get their attention, take them away, and fall into sexual immorality. And the sexual immorality itself led them away from God. It's not just that sexual immorality is wrong. It's that sexual immorality also is wrong because it takes your eyes off God who is the source of all life, like all sin does. So what's sexual immorality? Well, the Bible teaches that sex, which is a great thing, a blessed thing, and an exciting thing, and a gift from God. God came up with all that stuff. He made it exciting. He made it fun. He created orgasm. It was from God. Say amen. Some were more enthusiastic than others in that point. Okay. God did that. That wasn't the devil. That was God. God gave us sex. But he gave us sex for within a context. And the context that sex is to be enjoyed in is in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That is the only context that sex should be enjoyed in. Very clear in the Bible. If you have sex outside of marriage, the Bible calls that fornication. That's sex before marriage. That's fornication. Sex uh, man to man. That's sin. Woman to woman. That's sin. Sex man and woman outside of marriage. That's sin. If you're married and you have sex with someone else, that's called adultery. That's sin. If you're married and you start looking at pornography and masturbating, Jesus says that also is adultery, even though you haven't done it because you've lusted after another woman. That's sin. Sexual immorality. The Bible's clear on it. There's only one legitimate way of having sex. It's within marriage between a man and a woman. That's the only context. And outside of that, it's not only, oh, but Pete, you're killing our fun. No, it's not. I'm reading, I'm telling you what the Bible is saying. And it's not that God's trying to kill your fun. He's actually trying to enhance your fun. He's actually wanting to bless you. It's like, it's like you take fire and you, put, you have it in the living room in the fireplace. It's lovely and it creates warmth for the house. You take it out of the fireplace and throw it in the carpet. It will set the whole house on fire. Sex in a context is a blessing. Outside of that context ruins people. Many of you will tell me if you're honest, Pete, do you know what? You're right. This area was ruined because of wrong sex, or that area is ruined because of wrong, and you know that. You know that. 
Sure, it's pleasurable, but it's got a sting in its tail if it's outside of the right context. Now, notice Jesus, and I've seen this too many times, I've seen too many guys and girls, uh, they're under the umbrella, and then they get all distracted by someone who's shown interest in them. And before they know it, they've left the umbrella, they've completely walked out from under God's covering. They're pursuing a wrong relationship, and next thing they know, they're away from God. And that's the most dreadful thing. And you've seen it, right? If you've been around the church for a while, you've seen it. I've seen it. And this is what Jesus is writing to this church about. Now listen, Jesus is sympathetic to their environment. He says, listen, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell and where Satan has his throne. I, I get it. He understands that they're living in a very promiscuous environment. He understands that they're actually at a time where there's, everyone's doing this stuff and it's all around them and they're under the umbrella and all around them they can see all this stuff going on. He gets the pressures and temptation you face. He gets it. But he doesn't use their environment as an excuse for their behavior. He challenges their behavior in love. Jesus wasn't addressing the city. He wasn't saying, oh, Pergamon. He was addressing the church, God's people, in the city. You see, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying if you're not a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying if you're not a Christian today, you're going to behave this way. I'm, I'm talking to believers. I'm, you know, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, if Jesus isn't Lord of your life, I don't expect you to behave this way. Because you're not, I mean, if, if you claim to have Jesus as Lord of your life, then you should act like Jesus is Lord of your life. But if you're not claiming Jesus is Lord of your life, then listen, I get that you're just doing what everyone else is doing. All right, so, and welcome to church. Seriously, I really, it's great to have you here. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just nailing the people who claim to have Jesus as Lord of their life, which probably is most of the people in this room. All right, I'm nailing you suckers. You're the ones who are claiming to have Jesus as Lord of your life, and yet you're living outside of the umbrella. Get back under the covering of God. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I wrote to you in my previous letter, asking you not to associate with those who practice sexual immorality. Yet in no way was I referring to avoid contact with unbelievers who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or those who worship other gods. For that would mean you'd have to isolate yourself from the world completely. And folks, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went to all their parties. In fact, Jesus hung out with so many sinners, he got the reputation, he was called the friend of sinners. That was a derogatory uh, title that was given to him by the religious people of his day. Jesus went to all the wrong parties, and yet he didn't compromise. He was a friend of sinners. Why? Because he loves sinners, and so should you. All right? So he, he, Paul is affirming that point. Hang out with people who don't call themselves followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, I'm so glad you're here today. Honestly, I love you. I really love you. And God loves you. And I'm rooting for you. He says, you can't isolate yourself from the world. But then he goes on and says, but now I'm writing to you so that you would exclude from your fellowship anyone who calls himself a fellow believer and practices sexual immorality. Yeah, now you're calling yourself a believer. You can't can't just live that double life. Or is consumed with greed or is an idolater or is verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even mingle with them or even have a meal with someone like that. That's, uh, what right do I have to pronounce judgment on unbelievers? That's God's responsibility. God will judge all people. But those who are inside the church family, it's our responsibility to discern and judge. You know, when's the last time you saw a believer, someone who's claiming to follow Jesus, and actually they are wanting to follow Jesus. You've seen them want to follow Jesus and they've gone completely off track. When's the last time you, in love, challenged them? It's not loving just to ignore that. 
In the book of Proverbs, it says if you see someone uh, kind of falling into death or falling off the cliff, just grab them and pull them back. In love, go. And by the way, folks, church, I want to encourage you, don't just come on a Sunday, be part of a small group through the week. Because you're, you're then putting yourself in the position where you know people who hopefully will love you enough to challenge you if you're being a nutter. To challenge and pull you back if you're kind of going astray. That's good friends. Good friends are not the people who stand by saying nothing while they see you walking out from under protection. Good friends will tell you, listen, I love you too much just to let you go down that route. I know your emotions are all engaged with this thing, but pull out, come on, there's better for you. You've all gone really quiet on me, folks. Come on. The word Pergamum, interesting, the even name of the city, Pergamum, comes from two words, per, which means mixed or objectionable. Per, we get the word perverted from it, per, mixed or objectionable. And gamos, per, gamos, gamos means marriage, you know, monogamous, gamos. Marriage, per, mixed or objectionable, marriage. That's what it means, that, that, the whole city meant that. It's, a, it's, it's an, a, an allegiance based on a mixture, a compromise, where the people of God were mixing false practices and false beliefs with true beliefs, and that was dangerous. It's like the, the guy who's got a foot in two canoes. He's balancing in both canoes, but what he fails to realize is that one of the canoes has got a leak, all right? So it's only going to be so long while he can balance in the two canoes. A point will come, by default, that he's going to fall in the water, all right? He's got to pick a canoe. Choose the one that hasn't got the leak, all right? You've got to pick the canoe. You've got to pick a lane. And Jesus talked about, Jesus in his teaching talks about there's two paths, not one, two paths. There's two masters. Uh, there, there's two destinations, heaven or hell. He talked about how uh, there's two gates, there's two foundations. You've got to pick a lane. Jesus made it really clear there's a wide path and a narrow path. You've got to pick a lane. Now, the problem wasn't just the practices that Jesus had a problem with. It was actually the teaching that led to the practices. Listen to what he says, verses 14 and 15. I have a few things against you because there are he- some here who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Then he goes on and says, you also have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, it's the philosophy, it's the teaching behind the practice that's the dangerous thing. Why is it that today you don't feel free or you feel intimidated to articulate truth in our culture? Why is it that you feel, many of you feel intimidated to articulate clear truth lovingly in our culture? The answer is because the tolerant agenda isn't that tolerant. (laughs) It masquerades as tolerant, but it's not. Today we're told that wrong is right, and if you stand for what is right, that's wrong. What? Is anyone thinking? Is anyone actually thinking? Unquestionable things are being questioned. If you're a guy, you can choose not to be. That's strange, and that's unquestionable. I understand and have compassion for a confusion in someone's being. I have great compassion for that. But being given permission to question the unquestionable without any consideration of the mental or emotional ramifications of it, and the research shows there is huge mental emotional repercussions of these decisions. 
And there's no reference to that because that would be politically incorrect to make reference to that. That's dangerous, folks. If you, you, know, you can't disagree on any lifestyle today. I'm not saying you become disagreeable to people. Jesus is clear. Love your neighbor. And don't just do that as a token gesture. Really love people. But you shouldn't agree with every lifestyle. You shouldn't even agree about that in your own life. Right? I'm not talking, before you go talking about everyone else, look at your own life. Don't tolerate sin. Because it's damaging and dangerous. Jesus is against sin. Why? Because he's for you. One of the most dangerous poisons out there is cyanide. Just a few drops would kill a human being in an instant. But the crazy thing about cyanide, if you smelled it, it smells like sweet almond juice. And what the world is doing is it's taking the label cyanide and it's replacing it with the label sweet almond juice. It's taking things that are devastating, I mean devastating to your souls and it's saying it's okay. It's the teaching Jesus had the problem with. Jesus is against sin because he's for you. He was that against sin and that for you that he died on a cross. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came into the world not just to give us a new set of teaching. He did that. But the real reason he came is he came to die on a cross. And as he died on that cross, the sin of the whole world was placed on him. He was punished the way we should have been punished. He was punished for our sin, not for his own sin. He had no sin. He was the, he's the only human being who's ever lived sin-free. He was punished for us. He died in your place. Why on earth would he do that? Because he happens to love you more than anyone else has ever loved you. He's against sin, but he's for you. And he's against sin because he's for you. So don't call something sweet almond juice when it's deadly poison. So there was compromise in the church, and the compromise started with a philosophy, and, and, and the philosophy of our age is just as demonically inspired because it comes with an intimidation that is spiritual. And the philosophy will lead you down just as dangerous paths as it did 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus is just challenging us, don't compromise, don't compromise. No compromise. Verse 13, listen to this. Let's talk about a guy in the church who didn't compromise. Verse 13, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my, fi- my witness, my faithful one who is killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas, apparently the story goes, and it was common in those days, that the Roman governors of a city would demand that every citizen of the city would offer a tribute and a sacrifice to the emperor. And emperor worship had become common practice. They, they went from being political figures to being deified, and people were forced to offer sacrifices to these deity emperors. And so, just like other towns and cities in Pergamos, uh, believers were rounded up and they were forced, and Antipas was one of them. Antipas uh, was 
forced to offer incense and declare Caesar is Lord. And he didn't. He said, I can't do that. I can't do that. And the governor said, well, uh, if you don't do it, you'll die. And he says, I can't do it. And And he said to Antipas, do you not know, Antipas, the whole world is against you? And Antipas said then, he said, then, then I am against the world. And he was apparently burned to death. So that's Antipas. And Jesus gave him this amazing epitaph, my witness, my faithful one. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32 to 33, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Antipas. I think it's so silly. All these words, all these names in these verses are just loaded with meaning. Antipas is two words, anti and pass. Anti means against, pass means people or the world. So literally, it doesn't matter if the whole world's against you. Be the dude who takes the stand. Be the man who takes the stands. Even, even if you're going against the, the, the popular current of the day, even if everyone else is saying, Uh, No, no, wrong is right, and right is wrong. Even if everyone else is saying that, you know, folks, it's only the dead fish that go with the flow. (laughs) It's only the dead fish. Think about it. It's only the dead fish that go with the flow. That was an impersonation of a dead fish. Okay, don't go with the flow. The common vote, you know, popular doesn't isn't the ultimate standard of truth. There was a, a pianist one day, and he performed in this huge concert hall, and, and it was an incredible piece. He, was, he, he played amazingly, and he was a solo pianist, and at the end of his performance, there was just such a sense of excitement in the audience. Everyone stood to their feet, gave him a standing ovation, applauded him, and cheered him, and, and it was incredible. But there was one guy right in the front row who stayed seated. Everyone else stood, was one guy stayed seated. And uh, the pianist came off the stage at the end of the performance and started weeping. And his head was, he couldn't even beside himself. And his manager said, why are you weeping? Did you not see the standing ovation? And the, the, the pianist said, but, but did you see the guy in the front row? The old guy in the front row? He didn't stand. And the manager said, listen, everyone else stood. Why is one guy bothering you? And the man said, you don't understand. He composed the music. His opinion is actually the only one that counted. And at the end of your life, folks, it doesn't matter how many people say, hey, well, well done, you're just saying wrong is right and right is wrong. And it, The only one that's actually going to count is I follow Jesus. I, I actually, I, I performed for the audience of one, God. It didn't, it didn't matter what the world said. I love the world to bits. I love people who disagree with me to bits. And you should but I'm still going to stand for truth. And that's the radical. I'm going to live for God, no matter if anyone else does or not, I'm going to live for God. I'm living for the audience of one. And then you come to the solution in the end of these verses, and Jesus says in verse 16, therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will war, make war against them with the sword of my mouth, with the sword of my mouth. I'll come to that in a minute because that's very significant. But what, what was interesting is in the first century, if you were a Christian, you could have gone into the marketplace and shouted out at the top of your voice, 
Jesus is God's. And no one would blink an eyelid. They'd be fine with that. Because the Roman Empire was actually fine with many people having different gods. No problem at all. You could say Jesus is God, and it wouldn't have got you into trouble at all. What would get you into trouble if you declared Jesus is Lord? It's the Greek word kuros. It means supreme in authority. God, master, Jesus is supreme. You see, people, people don't care what religion you got, as long as you keep it to yourself. But you going and saying and truly believing that there is one, not many, one who has supreme authority over every human being. One to whom we will all give an account. One, to who, one who, who died for us. And as soon as you say he died for your sins, that has a huge inference on, you call me a sinner? So either you've got to accept you're a sinner and accept that, or you've got to deny you're a sinner and justify yourself. So you, instantly, as soon as you come up with this, Jesus is Lord, you're cutting the crowds. It's, it's really tough. Jesus is Lord. You can say Jesus is God all you like. Everyone likes lots of religions. But saying Jesus is Lord is making a claim about Jesus that stood out from the crowds. Jesus himself said in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? You know, if, if, he's, if he's, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. If he's Lord, then do what he says. You don't say he's Lord if you're not going to do what he says. And here in these verses, Jesus introduces himself and says in verse 12, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 16, he says, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, both of those quotes link back to Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus uh, revealed himself to, as, as the one with the sword, double-edged, sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's, it's not a literal thing when you see Jesus, he's walking around with a sword. It's... it's, it's symbolic, and it's declaring the reality that he is the word of the Lord. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, what is this double-edged sword? It says, the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the the word of God is the sword, the double-edged sword that Jesus is referring to. So Jesus is saying to this church, he's revealing himself as the one with a sword, as this word that divides, as this word that kind of cuts to the heart. And when you're reading the Bible, it does that. Maybe even today as we're reading the Bible, it's it's kind of doing that. It, It just cuts past the nonsense and boom, right in there. And it doesn't cut us it doesn't cut us to, to kill us. It cuts us to heal us. It cuts us to do an operation in us and, and to go deep and to get past this, this nonsense and just say, come on, I love you. And it comes right in there to divide nonsense from our heads and it comes to challenge us. The Bible, there is no book like it. The Bible has the power, literally, it's so packed with power, the very words of God that created the entire universe with a word. That same power it's contained in the Bible. Same power that says Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came out of the tomb. A dead man rose. Same power that Jesus said to the fig tree, you're cursed. And it withered instantly. Same power that raised Lazarus, that opened blind eyes, that created the universe. That's how power packed the Bible is. The word of God, Holy Scripture. 
It has power. And it's a sword. In the 1990s, an author, Ronald Swartz, asked many other well-known authors at the time who their favorite writers were and what their favorite books were. And people came back with probably pretty-to-be-expected books and, and authors. And, they, and some of them came back with books like about, you know, written by Mark Twain, Dickens, Shakespeare, and others. But topping the list, most other authors came back saying that the Bible was their favorite book, or the Bible was the thing that challenged them most. Why? Well, the late journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said this. He said, the Bible is the book that reads me. It's not just a book you read, it's the book that reads you. You read the book, and it, 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 (laughs) close it, it's reading me, it's reading me. It challenges you. It challenges you. But don't seek to master it. Let it master you. This is the word of God. Let it be, if he's Lord, let his word be supreme. So if he's Lord, well, what does he say about relationships? Well, amen. Even if it's not your preference, amen. What does it say about finance? Amen. What does it say about how to do church? Amen. What does it say about water baptism? We'll do it that way then. What does it say about how to, how to operate as, a, as an employer or as an employee? It's got tons of wisdom for you. Just do it that way, and you will succeed. Just, just live by the book. Just let his word be paramount. The sword, scripture. GQ magazine, a great theological magazine. <laughs> Three of you laughed. All right, now you've heard of it, okay. If I said this in, the, in, in our other locations, they say, oh, the GQ magazine, right? GQ magazine, fashion magazine. In April this year, uh, it listed 21 books you don't have to read, and in it, it listed the Bible. And actually, it is subtly saying what society is saying. Don't go near that book. Don't go near that book. One missionary arrived back from a missions trip to a very closed country. And as she, she went through the border, they asked her, do you have any guns, drugs, or Bibles? Because <laughs> that book's dangerous. Any guns, drugs, or Bibles? And they've got it. They, they've got it. They see it clearly. GQ sees it clearly. This book cuts past the nonsense. This book is like a sword. It goes deep. It challenges the fabric of society. It comes against all the lies that would take you down destructive paths. It exposes darkness for what it is and shines light. It's a, it, there's no one who can say you read that book and you find it easy going. It's a tough book. It's a rough ride. It's an emotional roller coaster. I find it a hard book. I grapple with I read it every day, every day of my life. For the last 27 years, I've read this book every day of my life. And I ain't got it sorted. It's sorting out me. It challenges me to the core. It's an amazing book. The Bible's like a plumb line. And when a builder's building a wall or a house, holds the plumb line up, just to check that the wall's in line. If the wall's like this and the plumb line's like this, it would be a stupid builder to decide, I have a faulty plumb line. <laughs> I need a new one. That'd be crazy. The plumb line never gets it wrong. Why is, why is it so important that the Bible's in your life? Why is it so important to build as a plumb line? Because he wants you to build well. He's not one to ruin your life. He's not one to take away your pleasure. He wants you to build solid. He wants you to build well. He wants you to have a great foundation, a brilliant house. Build that way. Short-term pain? Yeah, I get it. Long-term gain? Absolutely. Build that way. Saying Jesus is Lord, following the Bible, might mean in that culture you lost your life 2,000 years ago. In some parts of the world today, definitely would mean you lose your life. 
Every few minutes, someone dies for their faith on planet Earth. Over, over 100,000 martyrs every year. Today, they're not, that wasn't the bad old days back then. We're living in the bad old days. There are more martyrs today than there were at any other time in history. We're just living in a very comfortable part of the world. So it might not be in our part of the world we lose our life for that, but it might be that by declaring Jesus as Lord and truly meaning it, you give up relationships that were contrary to what the Lord Jesus wanted. Or you end a lifestyle that you just knew was contrary to what Jesus said. Or you give up on ambitions that you knew were not God-inspired ambitions. Or you cut off wrong influences in your life that you just know, that's, that's, that's taking me out from under this covering. Making Jesus as your Lord might mean you're denying certain emotions that would want to go in a particular route, but you're reining them in. Saying Jesus is Lord and truly following his word might mean you deny your sex drive. Might mean you don't go and get revenge. And you choose to let go and make a choice to forgive and ask God to help you with that. Making Jesus Lord and try to follow his word might mean you persevere when everything within you says, I want to quit. I want to quit on this thing. And yet you persevere. Saying Jesus is Lord might mean Actually, you get misunderstood or slagged or called narrow-minded. Making Jesus Lord and following his word might mean years of battle against that thing. While others are out partying, you're battling. Following Jesus might mean that the alcoholic resists the battles and doesn't go to the parties. Might mean that you stay in an unexciting marriage instead of pursuing all the opportunities that are around you or living your life online porn. You know, following Jesus and letting him be in Lord of your life might mean you become a mum instead of aborting the child. And it means you can complete your studies. And it means you lost your freedom. It might mean you go to jail. We had a guy in our church who, after becoming a believer, he knew the police were looking for him. And he handed himself in. And he went and served a jail sentence because he'd chosen to follow Jesus because Jesus was Lord. God hasn't called you to be true to yourself. He's called you to be true to him. Jesus said to him who overcomes, verse 17, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it and the stone which no one else knows but he who receives it. In the ancient world, if you, a jury would decide the verdict by, instead of casting a vote, they would cast stones. And if they put black stones in the container, that was them declaring the person guilty. If the jury put white stones in the container, it was declaring the person innocent, free, guiltless. And Jesus is saying, you will be declared guiltless. And by the way, He's not saying, behave yourself, then you'll be declared guiltless. He's saying that people who stay, you know, you stay under that covering. It's just, you're staying in Christ, because in Christ you're guiltless. In Christ, you're righteous. In Christ, you're forgiven. In Christ, you're acquitted. You're staying under that acquittal. You're staying in that innocence that comes from Christ. You're staying in that freedom.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for every single last person in this room. You love them, Father, and you have a great plan for their lives. Jesus, you've really spoken to us this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for that, for that sword that just cuts through the nonsense, that just cuts right to our hearts and lovingly challenges us, lovingly corrects us. And God, myself and everyone here feels it today. God, I ask in Jesus' name, you'd help us now to live with the courage that our 2,000-year-old brothers and sisters lived with, who are able to say Jesus is Lord in a culture where that was not the popular thing to say. And I pray we would be like that. We would be people who could say Jesus is Lord. Okay, in God's presence, each one of you take a moment just now to make your own response to God. This is the audience of one, folks. This is actually nothing to do with who is sitting beside you or who brought you today or uh, anyone in your family or workplace or anything, anyone thinks. Actually, at the end of the day, we will stand before God. And he's the composer. He's the creator. He's the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you just to have a moment before God just now. And I think about the implications of following Jesus. You might already be a follower of Jesus, as most of you are. And today I'm saying think again about the implications of following Jesus. And just declare in your heart, Jesus... Be Lord of that area of my life. Now, you know the area. So talk to him about it. Be Lord of my marriage. Be Lord of my life as a wife or as a husband. Be Lord of my life as a single person. Be Lord in the area of my sexuality. Be Lord in the area of my alcohol or substance abuse. Be Lord in the area of pornography be Lord. Just each one's got their thing. Just ask him to be Lord afresh. Just declare him to be Lord afresh and and submit to him. And when you submit to him, you have power. Power over darkness and freedom in God. While people are praying those prayers, I want to give you an opportunity just to make a response to God today. If you're if you're not yet the Lord's, I'm so pleased you're here. If you and God are not yet connected, you and God are not yet walking together, just right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Why not make the greatest decision of your life? And put your trust in the one who gave everything for you. Jesus died for you. No one else has done that for you. And he did it because he loves you. And he rose again in the third day and he's alive right now and he is supreme he is Lord and he's here by his Holy Spirit and today if you haven't yet yielded your whole life to him and chosen to trust him and follow him then this is your moment just while everyone else's eyes are closed just pray this prayer with me under your breath one line at a time repeat after me dear Lord God 
thank you for your great love for me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on that cross for me. And thank you for rising again on the third day. Today, I make a choice. I put my faith in you to be my Savior. And I commit my life to you. Jesus, be Lord of my life today and forevermore. Help me, God, with these decisions. Come into my life. Change me from the inside out. Thank you for hearing my prayer.